Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, Bill Would Trim Civil Rights Law. Gender Identity Would No Longer Be Protected. It's written by Aaron Murphy of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa Civil Rights Act would be changed by removing gender identity as a protected class and by adding gender dysphoria to disabilities covered by the act under legislation that will be considered by state lawmakers next week at the Iowa Capitol. Created in 1965, the Iowa Civil Rights Act prevents discrimination based on identifying characteristics like age, race, color, religion, national origin, or disability. The act was amended in 2007 to add sexual orientation and gender identity. A bill introduced by Iowa State lawmaker Jeff Shipley, a Republican from Birmingham, would now would remove gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Shipley's bill would instead add the act's covered disabilities, gender dysphoria, which the American Psychiatric Association defines as a psychological distress that results when an individual has a gender identity that is different from their sex at birth. Advocates for transgender people expressed their vehement opposition to the proposal. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, it's going to hurt a lot of people, said Keenan Crow with the LGBTQ advocacy organization One Iowa. The proposed bill, House File 2082, would need to move through the Iowa House Judiciary Committee, which is chaired by Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison. A 2020 proposal simply to remove gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act did not advance through Holt's committee that year. This time, Holt and the Des Moines Register told the Des Moines Register that he wants to hear the conversation around the newly the new proposal from Shipley, calling it an interesting concept. I just want to hear a conversation about it. I want to have a subcommittee hearing and hear a conversation about it, Holt told the register. I still have concerns about this, but I at least want to have the conversation and see where it goes. The subcommittee hearing, the first step in Iowa's state lawmaking process, is scheduled for Wednesday at the Iowa Capitol. Iowa Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids who will represent his party in the subcommittee's legislative panel, said the proposal is terrible for multiple reasons, including the way the bill removes gender identity from the act's protections, but includes gender dysphoria among protected disabilities. First off, it's insulting, Sheets said, to characterize people who are non-binary and transgender as having a mental illness, essentially, which is what it does, to say that they're disabled mentally for being themselves, I think is just wrong. Sheets and Crows said the proposal likely would not provide the same legal protections to transgender Iowans as the current Civil Rights Act. Crow noted that not all transgender people are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Being transgender and having gender dysphoria are two separate things. There are a decent amount of trans people that have gender dysphoria and a decent amount of trans people who don't have gender dysphoria, Crow said. So you're going to leave out that entire group of people who has no need for a diagnosis. Representative Jennifer Confirst, the leader of the minority party, Democrats in the Iowa House called the proposal hateful, unnecessary, and said there is a huge risk for unintended consequences. She said amending the Iowa Civil Rights Act in this way would be the exact opposite of the spirit of who Iowans are and what Iowans want. 
State House Republicans in the past two legislative sessions have passed a series of new laws impacting transgender and other LGBTQ Iowans, including a ban on gender transition treatments and surgeries for minors, a ban on teaching of gender identity or sexual orientation through sixth grade, a ban on transgender students using K-12 through school bathrooms that align with their gender identity by requiring students to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender at birth, and a ban on transgender girls competing in girls' sports. And in the other article on the front page of the Nonpareil this morning, Reynolds gives changes to controversial AEA overhaul. This is written by Caleb McCullough of the Lead Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds pitched a number of changes in a proposed amendment to a controversial bill that would overhaul the state's area education agencies. Reynolds previously said she would propose changes to the bill after state lawmakers said they received a deluge of complaints in response to the proposal. The amendment has not been filed with the Iowa legislature, but it was shared with lawmakers and published by the school administrators of Iowa. Under the proposed amendment, the state's nine AEAs would be allowed to continue offering education services like professional development and literacy programs, as well as media services to school districts who requested if approved by the Department of Education. Under Reynolds' original proposal, AEAs would have been restricted to providing only special education services, which are a central piece of of their current function. Reynolds said the proposal was needed to address Iowa's lagging test scores for students with disabilities. The AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. In a statement provided by a spokesperson on Monday, Reynolds said she introduced the changes after hearing feedback from parents, teachers, and other stakeholders. From the start, my focus has been on improving special education for Iowa students with disabilities. After introducing the bill, I met with legislators and heard feedback they received from parents, teachers, and school superintendents, Reynolds said. While we agreed changes to the AEA system are necessary, Our amendment allows us to address some of the issues schools raised. We made significant changes that support teachers and staff without compromising the students this bill prioritizes. Reynolds' new proposal would keep intact a $35 million property tax levy that schools can use to pay for the AEA's educational services, but remove a $33 million property tax stream that funds the agency's media services. The education service funds could be used for media services. The amendment would also dictate that all AEA services be reasonable and consistent with current market rates for such services. The amendment would send state and federal special education funds directly to schools who could then decide whether or not to contract with the AEAs. If they do not, schools would still have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities and could obtain that instruction from a third party like a private company. The amendment would move back the deadline for schools to opt in to AEA services from April 30th to February 1st in future years. In the first year, the deadline would be June 1st. Under the proposed amendment, AEAs would have the option of adding special education coverage to a school district at any time after the deadline. The amendment would not change the proposal to bump the starting pay for teachers up to $50,000. 
The bill will receive subcommittee meetings on Wednesday. Senate lawmakers will take up the bill at 2 p.m., while House lawmakers will consider it at 12 p.m. Democrats said Monday they are not satisfied with the new proposal. Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, a Democrat from Waukee, said the amended bill includes more state control of AEAs than the original bill. Reynolds's amendment keeps much of the original language that would move an array of oversight, budget, and operation responsibilities of the AEAs under the Department of Education. It does nothing good to make this bill better, Trone Garriott said, and it is not a response to the concerns of Iowans. It's just kind of moving some things around, but nothing has really changed. Trone Garriott also said she was concerned about the amendment not reinstating the property tax funding for media services to school districts. The previous bill prohibited media services. This bill allows them, but it doesn't fund them, she said. So both bills cut the money to fund the services. The schools don't get that money. It just goes away. Representative Sharon Sue Steckman a Democrat from Mason City, said she thinks the amendment does not do much to address Democrats' concerns. Steckman said Democrats don't have a problem with reviewing the AEAs, but she said the proposal should have been made in consultation with teachers, parents, and AEA staff. It doesn't look much different than what we had, she said, and why you want to put all that power into the Department of Ed in Des Moines and take it away from local schools and local AEAs, I have no idea. Representative Stephen Bradley, a Republican from Cascade, said he passed the proposed amendment on to superintendents in his district and has received mixed feedback. It's just like everything else. I like this piece and I don't like this piece. So that's what we're trying to work through right now, he said. That bill is a work in progress. Bradley, who said he has grandchildren who receive AEA services, said he was watching the proposal and listening to feedback from stakeholders. He said he's received around 2,000 emails on the bill, mostly against it. Everything depends on the final bill, he said. This is just an amendment, and I'm sure there could be some more, another amendment. So we'll see what the final bill is. I'm not going to make a decision until I see the final bill right in front of me. The original bill limited the ability of AEAs to voluntarily dissolve and granted the Department of Education director the authority to dissolve and reorganize agencies unilaterally. The amendment keeps the power to direct reorganization and dissolution of AEAs with the Department of Education director, but also allows an agency to voluntarily dissolve if approved by the Department of Education. Reynolds' office previously said the bill is not intended to close any AEAs. In an appearance on Iowa Press on Iowa PBS this month, though, Reynolds said she does not think Iowa needs nine AEAs. We need to do something big, she said. We need to reform, and I think by giving the districts the ability to hold the AEAs accountable to decide what program works best for the students that they are serving. Next article is entitled Space Shuttle Readied for Museum Display. Official says building will be completed around Endeavor. This is written by John Antzak of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Los Angeles. NASA's retired space shuttle Endeavour was carefully hoisted late Monday and attached to a huge external fuel tank and its two solid rocket boosters at a Los Angeles museum where it will be uniquely displayed as it is about to 
blast off. A massive crane delicately moved the orbiter, which is 122 feet long and has a 78-foot wingspan, into the partially built Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center at the California Science Center in Exposition Park. Crews then attached Endeavour, covered in a protective wrapping, to the tank in a process that lasted into the pre-dawn hours Tuesday. The building will be completed around Endeavour before the display opens to the public. This is a huge morning for us now, said Jeffrey N. Rudolph, president and CEO of the Science Center, who estimated it will take up to two years to finish the project. The scale of it is something that really amazes people, he said. Everyone who sees it, even those who've seen the shuttle before, they say, wow. The 20-story tall display stands atop a 1,800-ton concrete slab supported by six so-called base isolators to protect Endeavour from earthquakes. All parts of the vertical launch configuration are authentic components of the shuttle system, including the rust-colored external tank, which was flight-qualified. It's incredible, said Larry Clark, a veteran NASA contractor who spent nearly his whole career as a shuttle engineer and as a consultant to the Science Center's project. It brings back a lot of memories for me, he said. You know, I saw every space shuttle on the launch pad that ever flew as I worked on the launch pad, and to stand here and see it again like this is kind of melancholy. Clark described the work completed early Tuesday as a soft mate. The attachments will be further tightened Wednesday. Endeavour flew 25 missions between 1992 and 2011 when NASA's shuttle program ended. The shuttle was flown to Los Angeles International Airport in 2012 atop a NASA Boeing 747 and then created a spectacle as it was inched through tight city streets to Exposition Park. The external tank arrived by barge and made a similar trip across the city. The shuttle initially was displayed horizontally in a temporary exhibit hall. A groundbreaking ceremony for the Air and Space Center was held in 2022 on the 11th anniversary of Endeavour's final return from space. The process of assembling the shuttle system in vertical configuration was dubbed Go for Stack, an informal term for putting together rocket components for launch. It began in July with precise installation of the bottom segments of the side boosters known as aft skirts for the first time outside of a NASA facility. In use, the boosters would be attached to the external tank to help the shuttle's main engines lift off. The 116-foot-long rocket motors were tucked or trucked to Los Angeles from the Mojave Desert in October and installed the following month. In nation and world news, troops assault hospital. Israelis disguised as civilians, medics kill three in West Bank facility. Israeli forces disguised as civilian women and medics stormed a hospital Tuesday in the occupied West Bank, killing three Palestinian militants in a dramatic raid that underscored how deadly violence has spilled into the territory from the war in Gaza. The Palestinian Health Ministry said Israeli forces opened fire inside the Eib Sina Hospital in the West Bank town of Jenin. A hospital spokesperson said there was no exchange of fire, indicating it was a targeted killing. Israel's military claimed the militants used the hospital as a hideout without providing evidence. Security camera footage from the hospital shows about a dozen undercover forces, most of them armed, wearing Muslim headscarves, hospital scrubs, or white doctor's coats. 
One carried a rifle in one arm and a folded wheelchair in the other. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, meanwhile, ruled out a military withdrawal from Gaza or the release of thousands of jailed militants, Hamas's main two demands for a ceasefire, casting doubt on the latest effort to end a war that has destabilized the broader Middle East. Netanyahu, speaking at an event elsewhere in the West Bank, denied reports of a possible ceasefire deal to end the war in Gaza and repeated his vow to keep fighting until Israel achieves absolute victory over Hamas. Hamas's top political leader, Ishmael Haniyeh, said Tuesday the group was studying the latest terms for a deal, but the priority was full withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza, and any agreement should lead to a long-term ceasefire. He said Hamas's leadership was invited to Cairo to continue talks. The militant group, which has reached lopsided exchange deals with Israel in the past, is expected to demand and release thousands of pallets demand the release of thousands of Palestinian prisoners in exchange for the remaining hostages. The war in Gaza began when hundreds of Hamas-led militants stormed into southern Israel, killing about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and abducting about 250 others. Hamas released more than 100 during a week-long ceasefire in November in exchange for 240 Palestinians imprisoned by Israel. Israel's offensive has killed more than 226,700 people in Gaza, according to the health ministry in the Hamas-run territory. The ministry count does not distinguish between fighters and civilians, but the agency says about two-thirds of the dead are women and minors. Next is a story entitled, GOP Works to Boost Boot, to Boot Secretary. Republicans Want to Impeach Mayorkas Over Border Issues. Washington Republicans worked into the night Tuesday on a key vote toward impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over a willful and systematic refusal to enforce immigration laws as border security becomes a top 2024 election issue. The Homeland Security Committee spent all day debating two articles of impeachment against Mayorkas, a rare charge against a cabinet official unseen in nearly 150 years, as Republicans make GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump's hardline deportation approach to immigration their own. The actions and decisions of Secretary Mayorkas have left us with no other option but to proceed with articles of impeachment, Chairman Mark Green, a Republican from Tennessee, said. The articles charge that Mayorkas refused to comply with federal immigration laws amid a record surge of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border and that he breached the public trust in his claims to Congress that the border is secure. A committee vote expected later in the night after lawmakers slogged through amendments would send the articles to the full House for a vote as soon as next week. Mayorkas wrote a letter to the committee that it should be working with the Biden administration to update the nation's broken and outdated immigration laws for the 21st century and an era of record global migration. We need a legislative solution and only Congress can provide it, Mayorkas wrote. Rarely has a cabinet member faced impeachments, bar of high crimes and misdemeanors, and Democrats on the panel called the proceedings a stunt and a sham that could send, set a chilling precedent for other civil servants snared in policy disputes by lawmakers who disagree with the president's approach. This is a terrible day for the committee, the United States, the Constitution, and our great country, said Representative Bernie Benny Thompson of Mississippi, the committee's 
ranking Democrat. The House's proceedings are taking place as Senators and Mayorkas work on what could be the most consequential bipartisan immigration proposal in a decade, or it could collapse in political failure as Republicans and some Democrats run from the effort. Illinois Election Board Keeps Trump on Ballot is the title of our next story. Panel says it lacks the authority to remove him over Capitol riot. Illinois' election board on Tuesday kept former President Donald Trump on the state's primary ballot a week before the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments on whether the Republicans' role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol disqualifies him from the presidency. The board's unanimous ruling comes after its hearing officer, a retired Republican judge, found that a preponderance of the evidence shows Trump is ineligible to run for president because he violated a constitutional ban on those who engaged in insurrection from holding office, but the hearing officer recommended the board let the courts decide. The eight-member board, composed of four Democrats and four Republicans, agreed with a recommendation from its lawyer to let Trump remain on the ballot because it didn't have the authority to decide whether he violated the U.S. Constitution. Board member Catherine McCrory prefaced her vote with a statement, I want it to be clear that this Republican believes that there was an insurrection on January the 6th. There's no doubt in my mind that he manipulated, instigated, aided, and abetted an arrest and insurrection on January the 6th. And Biden says he decided on response to attack. He says he doesn't want war with Iran, but offers no details. President Joe Biden on Tuesday indicated he decided how to respond after the killing of three American service members Sunday in a drone attack in Jordan that his administration pinned on Iran-backed militia groups, saying he does not want to expand the war in the Middle East, but demurring on specifics. U.S. officials said they are still determining which of several Iran-backed groups was responsible for the first killing of American troops in a wave of attacks against U.S. forces in the region since the Hamas-led October 7th assault on Israel. Biden plans to attend the dignified transfer to mark the fallen troops' return to American soil on Friday. When asked by reporters if he'd decided on a response, he said he did and indicated he wanted to prevent further escalation. I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East, Biden said at the White House before departing on a fundraising trip to Florida. That's not what I'm looking for. It was not immediately clear whether Biden meant he decided on a specific retaliatory plan. A U.S. official said the Pentagon is still assessing options to respond to the attack in Jordan. Under the digest heading, we have an article that's entitled, Musk Says First Human Gets Neuralink Brain Implant. The dateline is New York. Elon Musk said the first human received an implant from his computer brain interface company Neuralink over the weekend. In a social media post Monday, Musk said the patient received the implant the prior day and was recovering well. The Neuralink co-founder added, initial results show promising neuron spike detection, but did not provide additional details. Neuralink is among groups working on linking the nervous system to computers to treat brain ailments. 
Neuralink previously said the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved its investigational device exemption, which generally allows a sponsor to begin a clinical study in patients who fit the inclusion criteria, the FDA said Tuesday. Veteran ordered jail on veteran ordered jailed on Capitol riot charges. A military veteran who shot and killed a handcuffed civilian in Iraq nearly 20 years ago was ordered jailed Tuesday on charges that he used a metal baton to assault police officers during the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Edward Richmond Jr., age 40, of Geismar, Louisiana, initially was released after his January 22nd arrest, but Chief Judge James Bossberg agreed with prosecutors that Richmond is a danger to the community. FBI agents found an AR-15 assault rifle while searching his home. He is prohibited from possessing firearms after his 2004 manslaughter conviction for fatally shooting an Iraqi cow herder in the head while serving in the U.S. Army. The government is concerned that, under growing pressure, he may snap again, a prosecutor wrote. Also Tuesday, Ralph Joseph Celentano III, age 56, of the Queens Borough of New York City, was sentenced to six and a half years in prison in the attack at the Capitol, where he blindsided a police officer and knocked him headfirst over a five-foot-high ledge. Under the briefly heading, we've got Tesla CEO Elon Musk is not entitled to a compensation package potentially worth more than $55 billion that Tesla's board of directors awarded, a Delaware judge ruled Tuesday in a shareholder's lawsuit. And the Justice Department is investigating whether Representative Cori Bush, a Democrat from Missouri, misused campaign funds for her personal security, the progressive lawmaker confirmed Tuesday. American employers posted 9 million job openings in December, up from November's 8.9 million, which itself was revised up in a report from the government Tuesday. It's a sign the U.S. job market remains resilient through layoffs, though layoffs rose last month. A federal appeals court declined Tuesday to reconsider its decision that would prevent private groups in several states from suing under a section of the Voting Rights Act, a fight that could land at the U.S. Supreme Court over a ruling civil rights groups say erodes the law. A U.S. Air Force pilot safely ejected from an F-16 fighter jet that crashed in waters off South Korea's coast Wednesday, the second crash of the aircraft in less than two months, the cause is under investigation. And U.S. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, said Tuesday his wife Gail, age 76, who leads an economic development partnership of the federal and 13 state governments and a colleague, were hospitalized the prior day after a car crash. Now read a technology article entitled New Tool to Discourage Phone Thieves, a closer look at Apple's stolen device protection feature written by Kelvin Chan of the Associated Press. You're in a crowded bar when a thief watches you unlock your iPhone with your passcode, then swipes it. That sinking feeling hits when you realize it's gone, along with priceless photos, important files, passwords on banking apps, and other vital parts of your digital life. Apple recently rolled out an update to its iOS operating system with a feature called Stolen Device Protection that makes it a lot harder for phone thieves to access key functions and settings. Users are being urged to turn it on immediately. 
Here's how to activate the new security option and why it's so important. What is Stolen Device Protection? Stolen Device Protection is a new setting that's included with the latest iOS release version 17.3. It is designed to foil thieves from wiping phones for resale or accessing Apple ID or other important accounts. Apple says the feature, buried in your iPhone's settings, adds an extra layer of security for users. It addresses a vulnerability that thieves have discovered and exploited, allowing them to lock victims out of their Apple accounts, delete their photos and other files from their iCloud accounts, and empty their bank accounts by accessing passwords kept in the Keychain Password Manager. Anecdotal evidence suggests phone thief thefts are surging, Stories of stolen phones abound on Reddit groups and in news articles in places from Los Angeles to London, where police say pickpocketing, table surfing, and snatching are common tactics. The Wall Street Journal reported last year how criminals watched people use their passcodes, then stole their phones and used the passcodes to ask, access their personal information. How does it work? Stolen device protection keeps track of a user's familiar locations, such as their home or workplace, and adds extra biometric security hoops to jump through if someone tries to use the device to do certain things when it's away from those places. A security delay feature is triggered by attempts to change critical settings when the user is away from familiar locations. It also reduces the importance of passcodes, which thieves can steal by peering over someone's shoulder forcing victims to hand them over in favor of biometric features such as faces or fingerprints that are a lot harder to duplicate. Let's say the bar thief that snatched your iPhone tries to erase its contents and settings to sell it. With stolen device protection turned on, the phone will now require a face ID or touch ID scan to verify that person is the rightful owner. That's the only way the new feature doesn't let someone use the passcode or any other backup method. Other actions that will trigger this feature, if it's not at a familiar place, include using passwords saved in Keychain or payment methods saved in Safari, turning off lost mode, applying for a new Apple card, or using the iPhone to set up a new device. There's also a second layer designed to slow down thieves trying to access critical security settings. If someone tries to sign out of an Apple ID account, change the passcode, or reset the phone while it's in an unfamiliar location, they'll have to authenticate using Face ID or Touch ID, wait an hour, then do a second facial or fingerprint scan. Changing an Apple ID password, updating Apple ID security settings, adding or removing face or touch ID, and turning off the Find My Device feature or stolen device protection also will trigger this feature. The security delay is designed to prevent a thief from performing critical operations so that you can mark your device as lost and make sure your Apple account is secure, the company said. When your iPhone is in a familiar location, these additional steps will not be required and you can use your device's passcode like normal. How do I activate it? It's simple, if you know where to look. First, download and update your phone with the latest iOS update. Then go to your settings, scroll down to Face ID and Passcode, or Touch ID and Passcode, and enter your passcode. Scroll down and you'll see Stolen Device Protection. Depending on your iPhone model, 
you'll need to tap or toggle to turn it on or off. Make sure you've first activated two-factor authentication and find my device for your Apple ID account or it won't show up. Since there's no opinions or obituaries in today's paper, I will read the humor column, which is entitled The Premiere of My 70s Show. It's written by Jerry Zazima of the Tribune News Service. On January 11, 1954, a date which will live in infancy, I made my grand entrance into the world. I arrived more than three weeks past my due date and have seldom been on time for anything since. On January 11, 2024, the date on which I turned 70, my mother, Rosina, who will turn 100 on November the 10th, called to wish me a happy birthday and said, I'd buy you a watch, but it wouldn't do any good. Now that I have hit the big 7-0, I am planning a year-long celebration, and I haven't been late for any of the four parties I have had so far. The first occurred when my wife Sue and I visited the home of our older daughter and her family a couple of weeks before my birthday. The highlight was when our grandchildren presented me with a coloring book. Then we had cookies. Happy birthday, Poppy, they sang. I felt years younger. In fact, if you transpose the numbers 7 and 0, that would be my intellectual age. Later, my daughter and her husband took me and Sue out to dinner. Cheers, they said as we clinked glasses. That was a nice low-key way to mark the momentous occasion. Afterward, I fell fast asleep. The second celebration was with my mother, who reminded me, because I am getting forgetful in my old age, that I set the record for being the most overdue baby in the history of Stamford Hospital in our hometown of Stamford, Connecticut. You were due on December the 20th, she said. You didn't want to come out. She smiled and added, but you were worth the wait. My mom, a retired nurse who used to work at the hospital, said that since pregnancies aren't allowed to go so long anymore, my record will never be broken. You were also born during a blizzard, she noted, and I have been perpetrating snow jobs ever since, I said. Mom didn't disagree. I never thought I would live to see a child of mine turn 70, she said. I'm shockingly immature, I told her. It makes me seem younger. She didn't disagree with that statement either. The party, which included Sue, our younger daughter, her husband, and their two daughters, ages 10 and 7, as well as my two sisters, my niece, and my two nephews, culminated with a birthday apple pie with, of course, the numbers 7 and 0 on top. My granddaughters helped me blow out the five candles. If you had 70 candles, my mother said, we would have had to call the fire department to put them out. Just wait until you hit the century mark, I said. It'll be a hot time. On my actual birthday, I made myself an Egg McJerry for breakfast because, I told Sue, I'm worth it. You sure are, she said, before making an appointment for an Arbor Care Specialist to come over in the afternoon to give us an estimate for taking down a couple of sick oaks and carting away a huge branch that had fallen in a storm. Some people celebrate milestone birthdays by going on a cruise, I said. I'm celebrating mine with a tree guy. That evening, Sue bought me special dinner, spaghetti with red clam sauce, from an Italian supermarket. For dessert, I had a cannoli with a hand candle on either end. What an exciting birthday, I gushed appreciatively. I may have to go to bed early. A couple of days later, our younger daughter and her family came over for yet another celebration. Sue baked a funfetti cake for the occasion. The girls again helped me blow out the candles. 
Being 70 is a lot of fun, I said, and it helps if you're not late to the party. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. And there's a nutrition article entitled Suffering from Loss of Smell and Taste. John T. reads this column in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and writes about his experience with COVID-19. I had minimal symptoms with the exception of my loss of taste and smell. I am a little concerned as it is approaching eight weeks since I have been negative for COVID and I have never recovered from my loss of taste and smell. Will this just pass in time or should I be concerned? Any ideas, suggestions would be much appreciated. I have an appointment with an ENT doctor in mid-February regarding this. Yes, John, I would definitely keep that appointment with your physician. I am not a doctor, but I can offer what I have sniffed out from research reports. First, you're not alone in this. As many as one in five people who have recovered from COVID-19 continue to have problems with smell and taste for eight or more weeks, according to an article on this topic published by the National Library of Medicine. Our sense of smell is directly related to taste, say experts, and both are necessary to make the food we eat appealing. When smell and taste are absent or distorted, it affects how we eat in a big way. Is there a treatment to recover these valuable senses? So far, the evidence is weak but hopeful, according to a systematic review of 38 studies on this topic published in 2023 in the Journal of BMC Infectious Diseases. Physical training and breathing exercises can help improve energy and quality of life, for example, but there is still a lot of uncertainty about how helpful they are in regarding one's sense of smell and taste, say the scientists. I was most intrigued with treatments that attempt to retrain the olfactory system that controls our sense of smell. While still a theory, hope lies in the fact that when these nerves are damaged, they have a unique ability to regenerate or heal themselves. Yet we have numerous receptors to detect hundreds of odors, so the retraining of our brain to correctly identify smells can be a painstaking process. This olfactory retraining therapy has patients relearn smell by sniffing at least four different odors twice a day for several months. One multi-center randomized clinical trial exposed patients to each smell for 15 seconds twice a day with a 30-second interval between odors. They reported an improvement in smell capacity after four weeks of this process. Along the way to restoring one's sense of smell and taste may come surprises. Some scents may be distorted, such as coffee that smells like gasoline or a favorite food that tastes rotten. Still, most researchers express hope that retraining one's sense of smell shows promise. Keep us informed, John. That's written by Barbara Innermill, who is a registered dietitian. You can reach her at barbara at quinessentialnutrition.com. Here's a couple entertainment briefs. First, Jeremy Renner, scared of slipping on TV show set. Jeremy Renner is scared of slipping and falling on the set of his TV show, Mayor of Kingstown. 
The 53-year-old actor spent two weeks in the hospital with critical injuries after he was crushed by a snowcat in a freak accident in January 2023. He is back at work for the first time filming his Paramount Plus show, but says he's worried about taking a tumble and hurting himself when they are filming outdoors in the freezing cold in Pittsburgh. He told People, I try to just do everything kind of step by step here. That's one foot in front of the other. Then you're walking. The show is arduous. I'm scared of slipping and falling as I lack lower body strength. Renner's first day back on set was in mid-January, and the actor said he was nervous about getting back to his day job. He previously said his daughter, Ava, age 10, was his number one reason for surviving his near-fatal accident. Marking the one-year anniversary of the incident, he wrote, With gratitude always, thank you all for your love and support. And Debbie Harry says she needs speech therapy. Debbie Harry thinks she needs to see a speech therapist because she spent years struggling with pronunciation. The Blondie singer, age 78, made the admission during an interview at the International Film Festival Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Harry admitted she's never been totally comfortable with the way she talks. I am not so bad with vowels, but I could work on consonants, she said. I'm going to a speech therapist tomorrow. Is anyone here a critic? I am more critical than you. Much more. During the talk with So Unreal director Amanda Kramer, Harry also admitted she's critical of her looks from Blondie's heyday and says watching her old music videos makes her want to tear my eyebrows off. The chat focused on cyberspace and technophobia, according to Variety, and Harry went on to say she's not a huge fan of the internet. She added, I get it's a fascination and a toy, but sometimes I find it to be ridiculous. Now we'll move on to the sports page, and our top story has to do with the Super Bowl, and it's entitled Chiefs 49ers Meet in Rare Rematch, written by Josh Dubow of the Associated Press. San Francisco 49ers finally climbed back up the playoff mountain to return to the Super Bowl, only to find a familiar foe waiting for them. When the Niners get a second shot at Super Bowl against the Kansas City Chiefs, it will be a rare title game rematch in this short of a span. It's perfect, 49ers defensive end Nick Bosa said about getting a second shot to knock off Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs in the past five seasons. They're as great as an organization, coach, quarterback as there is. And they were down, not looking great this year either, and they're playing their best ball now. So it's going to be a big challenge. There have only been eight Super Bowl rematches in the previous 57 games, with just three happening in a five-year span before this rematch. The winners of those three rematches were the teams that won the first meeting. There will be more than a dozen players scheduled to appear in this game, including several stars on both teams, after also playing in the game won by Kansas City 31-20 in Miami following the 2019 season. The Chiefs rallied from 10 points down in the fourth quarter to win that game and earned the first of two Super Bowl titles with Mahomes and coach Andy Reid at the helm. Kansas City also lost another and will be the third team to reach the championship game in four out of five seasons. We already have a pretty good idea how it's going to look, San Francisco coach Kyle Shanahan said. They've been doing it a while. Since we met them in 19, seems like they've been there every year since. We have been trying really hard to get back to this moment. 
Both teams have eight players on their active rosters who played for them in the first meeting, with Bosa joined by Debo Samuel, George Kittle, Fred Warner, Drew Greenlaw, Arik Armstead, Kyle Juszczyk, and Mitch Wisnowski. Mahomes will be joined by Travis Kelsey, Chris Jones, Harrison Butker, McCall Hardman, James Winchester, Nick Allegretti, and Blake Bell. San Francisco also has cornerback Shavarius Ward, who was on the Chiefs team that beat the Niners four years ago, and injured tight end Ross Dwelly, who is on season-ending injured reserve. The Chiefs have a former Niners player that Game, from that game and wide receiver Richie Hames, along with defensive lineman Derek Anadi on IR and Austin Ryder and Mike Pennell on the practice squad. Here's a look at the other times there was a Super Bowl rematch within five seasons of the first meeting. Giants versus Patriots. Eli Manning and the Giants spoiled New England's bid for a perfect season in 2007 and pulled off the upset again four years later. The Patriots came into Super Bowl 42 with an 18-0 record and were on the brink of matching the perfect season of the 1972 Dolphins when Tom Brady threw a six-yard touchdown pass to Randy Moss to make it 14-10 with two minutes and 40 seconds to go. But Manning drove the New York Giants down the field with help from David Tyree's helmet catch and threw a game-winning touchdown to Plexico Burris to stun New England. Manning did it again in the 2011 season, driving to a game-winning touchdown with 57 seconds left for a 21-17. Cowboys versus Bills. Dallas and Buffalo had the only Super Bowl rematch in consecutive seasons, meeting at the end of the 1992 and 1993 campaigns. The Cowboys got the best of both. They used nine takeaways and four touchdown passes from Troy Aikman to hand the Bills a 52-17 loss in Super Bowl 27. The rematch was far closer but had the same end result. James Washington returned to fumble for a touchdown early in the third quarter to tie the game, and Emmett Smith ran for two touchdowns in the second half for a 30-13 win. And Steelers versus Cowboys. The Cowboys were on the wrong end of Super Bowl rematch in the 1970s, losing to the Steelers following the 1975 and 1978 seasons. Dallas became the first wildcard team to reach the title game in Super Bowl X thanks to a desperation pass to beat Minnesota and a blowout against the Rams. But they fell short against the Steel Curtain in the second-half second comeback in Super Bowl history. Pittsburgh got a safety, two field goals, and a 64-yard touchdown catch by Super Bowl MVP Lynn Swan in the fourth quarter of a 21-17 win to complete back-to-back -back titles for the Steelers. Pittsburgh won again three years later in the first Super Bowl rematch ever to deny Dallas back-to-back -back championships. MVP Terry Bradshaw threw four touchdown passes and Jackie Smith dropped a potential touchdown for Dallas. Roger Staubach's late rally fell short and the Steelers won their Super Bowl 35-31. In college basketball, Georgia's layup lifts Georgia Tech over number 3 UNC. Nathan George scored a go-ahead layup with 7.7 .7 seconds remaining, and Georgia Tech beat number 3 North Carolina 74-73 on Tuesday night to end the Tar Heels' 10-game winning streak. R.J. Davis, who scored a game-high 28 points for North Carolina, 
won the race to a loose ball following a missed jumper by George and scored on a layup with 34 seconds remaining for a 73-72 edge. Following a Georgia Tech timeout, George drove for the go-ahead layup. Georgia Tech ended a three-game losing streak. North Carolina called a timeout with 4.6 seconds remaining, but Davis missed a last-second jumper, prompting Georgia Tech fans to celebrate by rushing onto the court. There was contact from Georgia Tech's Ebenezer Dewana on the last shot by Davis, who pleaded to the officials without success for a foul. North Carolina suffered its first conference loss following its best ACC start since winning its first 11 ACC games in the 2000-2001 season. Georgia Tech claimed its third home win over a top 25 team. South Carolina 63, number 5 Tennessee 59. Latan Cooper hit a critical three-pointer with 40 seconds left and scored 18 points, and B.J. Mack added 16 to lead South Carolina over Tennessee in Knoxville. Miles Stute scored 13 points for the Gamecocks, who have beaten the conference's two highest-ranked teams. They knocked off number 10 Kentucky on January 23rd. Dalton Necht scored 12 points in the final three minutes and finished with 31 points for the Volunteers, who had won four straight games. Number 8, Kansas, 83, Oklahoma State, 54. Hunter Dickinson and K.J. Adams Jr. each scored 16 points to lead a balanced scoring attack, and Kansas defeated visiting Oklahoma State. All five starters for the Jayhawks scored in double figures. John Michael Wright led the Cowboys with 16. Number 9, Marquette, 85, Villanova, 80. Tyler Kolek hit five three-pointers and scored a career-best 32 points to lead Marquette over host Villanova. Kolek was 10 of 20 from the floor and 7 of 8 on free throws for the Golden Eagles, who have won five straight. T.J. Bama and Eric Dixon scored 24 points apiece for the Wildcats, who have lost five straight games for the first time since the 2011 season. Number 14, Illinois, 87, Ohio State, 75. Marcus Damask and Terrence Shannon Jr. each had 23 points as Illinois beat host Ohio State. The Fighting Illini held a 41-34 lead at the break after going 7 of 10 in the final 6 minutes, 32 seconds of the first half. Jamison Battle led the Buckeyes with 21 points. Roddy Gale Jr. added 20. Number 25, TCU, 85. Number 15, Texas Tech, 78. Trevian Tennyson scored 23 points. Micah Peavy added 18 against his former team, and host TCU beat Big 12-leading Texas Tech. Tennyson made a tie-breaking three-pointer with 17 minutes, 21 seconds left, in the, and the Horned Frogs went ahead to stay. They trailed by as many as 11 points before halftime. Pop Isaacs led the Red Raiders with 25 points and 9 assists. Number 17, Utah State, 82, San Jose State, 61. Great Ozebor scored 31 points to lead Utah State over visiting San Jose State. Ozebor had his third 30-point game of the season to help the Aggies win their third straight game. MJ Amy led the Spartans with 14 points. Number 21, Dayton, 83, George Washington, 61. Deron Holmes, the second, had 25 points and 12 rebounds as Dayton 
bounced back from its first loss in over two months to rout visiting George Washington. Nate Santos and Kobe Brea each added 17 for the Flyers. Darren Buchanan Jr. paced the Revolutionaries with 13 points and 8 rebounds. And number 23, Oklahoma, 73. Kansas State, 53. Jalen Moore had 23 points. Javian McCullum added 21. And Oklahoma pulled away from host Kansas State down the stretch. The Sooners blew most of a 17-point first-half lead before using a 12-1 run over the closing minutes to put the game away. Tyler Perry led the Wildcats with 23 points. In Major League Baseball news, source says Rubenstein has deal to buy Orioles for $1.725 billion. Carlisle Group Incorporated founder David Rubenstein I believe it's Rubenstein, has reached an agreement to buy the Baltimore Orioles for $1.725 million, according to a person with knowledge of the deal. The person spoke to the Associated Press on the condition of anonymity Tuesday night because the agreement had not been announced. Rubenstein, a Baltimore native, would take over as the team's controlling owner, and he's assembled an investment team that includes Erez co-founder Michael Argoetti. The Angelos family has been in control of the Orioles since 1993 when Peter Angelos purchased the team for $173 million. Angelos' son, John, is the team's current chairman. The team recently reached a deal on a new lease extension at Camden Yards. Maryland officials approved that long-term agreement after months of negotiations. The deal extended the lease for 30 years with an option to end it after 15 if the team does not receive approval from state officials for development plans next to the ball. And whether he wins or loses, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will set a record for the highest salary ever awarded in arbitration. Guerrero has asked for $19.9 million and been offered $18.05 million, meaning he's guaranteed to top the $14 million former Toronto teammate Tessicar Hernandez received from Seattle. Infielder Justin Turner agreed to a $13 million one-year contract, according to a person familiar with the deal. Turner hit 276 with 23 homers and 96 RBIs and an 800 OPS last season for the Boston Red Sox. Here's some scores from the NBA. The Boston Celtics defeated the Indiana Pacers 129 to 124. The Knicks defeated the Jazz 118 to 103. The Hawks defeated the Lakers 138 to 122. The Raptors defeated the Bulls 118 to 107. And the Warriors took down the 76ers 119 to 107. A couple brief NBA news stories. Stephen Curry is headed to All-Star Weekend. Sabrina Ionescu will be waiting for him there. Steven versus Sabrina will happen as part of All-Star Saturday Night on February the 17th. And Indiana State Police arrest two-time NBA champion Rajon Rondo on Sunday on misdemeanor gun and drug charges. And a couple NHL scores. The Blue Jackets defeated the Blues 1-0. And the Sharks defeated the Kraken 2 
to zero. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.